Make your way in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of uh, Acts. What we're going to see there as you guys uh, pick back up in the text is this story in Acts that uh, Luke, one of our gospel writers, writes. It's a continuation of the work that was, uh, as he says in verse 1 of chapter 1, that Jesus both began to do and teach. And so what we find is this is a continuation of the gospel accounts. So it, it makes sense that we went from Matthew to the book of Acts because we'll have now a continuation of the story of Jesus. And he began this back at the end of Matthew when he shared with his disciples, look, I'm going to be crucified. This is what Jesus predicted. It, it took place. I'm going to rise again on the third day, just as I said I was going to. And then they get the opportunity with the risen Christ to spend some 40 days with him as he interacts with them back and forth. And in that time, they went back up to the Galilee region as Jesus commanded, where he would have uh, additional lessons with them in the Galilee area. And from there, they've then traveled through this 40-day window that Jesus was uh, present with them on the earth. He, they traveled back down to Jerusalem where he would eventually ascend at the Mount of Olives. This is that area geographically located just east of the temple there in Jerusalem. And so they, we saw in chapter 1 the ascension of Jesus, but before he ascended, he gave them a promise. In verse 4, he commanded them to go back to Jerusalem and wait on the promise of of the Father, and then skipping down to verse 8, this promise was that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit would come upon them so that they could be witnesses. This powerful uh, impartation of the Holy Spirit, this coming upon is what they would receive so that they could, in the Greek, receive dunamos power or dynamite power is what they would receive from the Lord as the Holy Spirit comes down upon them. And so this is the third relationship of the Holy Spirit. But remember, these first two relationships that we as humans have with the Holy Spirit are, are first, uh, he is alongside us. This is that way for every human that is alive, that the Holy Spirit comes alongside, or para is the word in the Greek. He is constantly pointing towards our need of a Savior. This is that little voice, that, that conscience that we get that whispers, hey, don't do this, don't do that. This is not going to go well for you or that encouragement that we might get. But all that is a leading back to an acceptance of Jesus and an, and an entry into the second relationship with the Holy Spirit, and that is where he dwells in us. And so in John chapter 20, verse 22, we see this taking place for at least 11 of these disciples where Jesus is there post-resurrection, and he breathes on them, and he says, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. And at that point in time, the Holy Spirit went from just a relationship alongside to a relationship now within. This is what happens when a person accepts Christ as their Savior. This is that moment where it's a confessing with the mouth and believing in our heart that Jesus is the Son of God and that he has died for our sins. He's risen again, just like he's going to raise us up again. And so this is that second relationship where he is, in fact, inside the believer, living in each of us. Now then, this third relationship, this coming upon, this is what's known as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is the point where the believer goes from just being a common, everyday believer to actually being baptized in the Spirit and having power, not so that we can use it you know, willy-nilly or to zap people in the McDonald's drive-thru, although many of you thought about doing that, maybe even this morning, but it's not that kind of power. It's a power specifically to be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so that covers the gamut. We're to be witnesses all over, and, 
and we're given this power so that we can do so. Now, at the end of chapter 1, what we saw is as the disciples waited there in the upper room, that they're waiting, they're praying together in one accord, which, by the way, is always a sign that the Holy Spirit is present. Anytime you see unity taking place, that is the Spirit of God that unites us together, which, conversely, anytime you see a disunity, you know some other spirit is at play. So where there's discourse, there's another spirit. Where there's unity, there's the Spirit of God. And so as they're praying there together, uh, Peter gets revelation through prayer that, hey, we've only got 11 apostles. God appointed 12. There's got to be another one appointed for the word of the Lord to actually be fulfilled. So he gets this revelation during prayer, and he then goes back to Scripture to get interpretation. Which, by the way, anytime you get a revelation from the Lord, it will always line up with his word. It will never contradict. It will always fall directly in line with what God's word says. So Peter gets revelation through prayer. He gets interpretation through scripture. Uh, the issue came into play when it came to application. He struggles with application because he wants to go out and do immediately, and he trusts his gut. We need somebody. we got to pick one. Let's cast lots. This is the Old Testament version of rolling the dice. Peter was there. Come on, baby. He was waiting for his numbers to come up. And so he, he applies this, uh, this incorrectly because what God commanded them to do, what Jesus said was, wait. I'm telling you to go back and wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, where instead of relying on their gut instinct, they could actually rely on the intuition given by the Holy Spirit. And so what you find is uh, Peter getting out of step with God. He gets ahead of the Lord. This is always a dangerous place for us to be. And he misses out on what God had uh, that was the best for these 11, that the 12th apostle would actually be a guy named uh, Paul, <laughs> that they wouldn't even know for several months. And when they did get to know him, he was known as Saul of Tarsus, a man who was persecuting the church, the last guy you would have picked to have been an apostle. And yet this is God's choice. He was going to change him, change everything about the Apostle Paul. He would write uh, nearly half of the books in our New Testament. And so this is what we find from Peter. He gets out of step with God. But I wanted to bring all that up, not to pick on Peter, but to actually say, if you notice through the text, the Holy Spirit never even highlights it. <laughs> he never even points out, this is where Peter messed up. This spot right here is where he goofed. And I love that. Because I wonder how many times in my life I have completely gotten out of step with God. I've completely whiffed. Lots of times I had really good intentions. Like I am, I'm intending to do right in this place, and yet I miss it completely. Or there's times where I didn't have good intentions. I actually had bad intentions, and I messed it up. And I, what I love is the grace of God and how he covers for all these things. He completely obliterates any uh, reminder of Peter's failing. Instead, his word is just fulfilled, and he just gets to continue to move along. So thank you, Lord, for the grace of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to see the Holy Spirit now this morning come upon these disciples that are gathered together. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, and when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And so we see these 120 now gathered in this upper room all together on the day of Pentecost. Now this feast of Pentecost is one of the big three in the Hebrew Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 16 verse 16 says that all Jewish males were to come back to Jerusalem for, one of, for all three of these big feasts. The first being Passover, then 50 days later Pentecost, 
And then after the summer harvest is complete, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so there are these three big feast seasons that they were supposed to all come and take part of. Now, Pentecost is uh, called Penta. The name, the number five is Penta. So 50 weeks, it, or 50 days, it occurred after Passover. So it's also referred to often as the Feast of Weeks because it was seven weeks after the day after Passover. Hopefully you tracked with me there. So in other words, 50 days after Passover is complete. And what they would do is they would come to Jerusalem there, or many would actually just stay in Jerusalem because they were just there for Passover. And so they would hang out for these 50 days. It took too long to get home and come back. And they would come to a Pentecost with two loaves of bread. And this is significant when you look at the typology in the Bible because historically speaking, it was believed that Moses actually brought the law from Mount Sinai to the people during the Feast of Pentecost. So here's Moses. He comes down the Mount Sinai and he has two tablets in his hands. So the bread was a symbol of these two tablets. And when you begin to look at what Jesus says of himself, what does he say in John's gospel? But I am the bread of life. And then John also says in John chapter 1, uh, verse 1, he says that, the, that uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then if you skip ahead to verse 14, it says, and then the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so in this place, you see the word of God, Jesus, the bread of life, Jesus, is actually brought there to Pentecost to be offered up. And so we have this tie from the Old Testament to the New Testament all through this Feast of Pentecost. But something else that's interesting taking place in all this is when Moses first delivers the law there on the inaugural Pentecost in Exodus chapter 32, he comes down the mountain and what he finds is he's got the Ten Commandments. It's got to be exciting. I mean, God spoke to him over this 40-day period and yet he finds them completely violating the law of God. They're violating commandment number one putting a God before themselves. What they had actually done is they got all freaked out that Moses had gone up on this mountain. There's thundering and lightning. It's terrifying. They're like, look, Moses probably got wiped out. God probably smoked him. And so they go to his brother Aaron and they said, hey, we need a God to worship. Why don't you fashion us a God? And so Moses, or so Aaron has them bring uh, gold and artifacts and he fashions a golden calf. Sadly, one of the gods that they left in Egypt. One of the gods that uh, Jehovah actually showed judgment upon, they go back to worshiping, back to their old ways. And so as Moses comes down the mountain with the word of God, what he finds is them there uh, reveling in what was essentially an orgy taking place as they worshiped this God, this false god uh, of the calf. And so what we find is then at that time as Moses comes down and delivers the law, that all of them were then guilty, and 3,000 people died that day because they violated the law of God. And see, the reality is um, this is what the law always brings about. The law is perfect at what it does, by the way. It uh, points out our need for a Savior, that each and every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what the law does is exactly what it does here in Exodus 32. It points out that they need a Savior. They could not do this on their own. They violate the law right off the bat. So, skipping ahead then in this book of Acts, if you go to verse 41, I'll 
step into next week just a little bit for you. Notice with me on this particular Pentecost, as the Spirit of God is given in place of the law of God, or actually to enhance the law of God, to bring a reconnection to the law. Verse 41, And then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day 3,000 souls were added to them. In Exodus, all the way back thousands of years ago, the law was given. 3,000 die. The Spirit of God is given. 3,000 come back to life. Isn't that beautiful? The, the Spirit of God is all about rejuvenation. It's all about resurrection. It's all about bringing people into life, not death through the letter of the law. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, is that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's precisely what we see here in this connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Sinners saved by grace. Now then, verse 2. And suddenly... There came a sound from heaven, or a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in tongues, with, and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so what we find in these next verses is the Holy Spirit now comes into the room and two different symbols are used, the, a mighty wind, a rushing wind, and then also uh, tongues of fire. And what I wanted to point out to you with this is uh, notice there is one wind, a mighty wind, singular, and yet there are tongues of fire. There is a plurality. There is diversity while there is also unity with the Holy Spirit. And the reality is uh, we are not all exactly the same here. He picks a very diverse, different group of people, and yet, in his Holy Spirit, because of his Spirit, we actually can have unity while still being very diverse. As the fire comes down from heaven, this gives us, again, back to Exodus, a very clear picture of the tabernacle, the pillar of fire that was there over the tabernacle. And what are, what are our bodies called in the New Testament but tabernacles, right? We, we've got these tents we're walking around in, and what is he offering to us but this fire of the Holy Spirit actually given to us there in our tabernacles? Now, we also notice that in the tabernacle, what took place as the fire came down was it was actually an opportunity for man to be reconnected to God, a fellowship. But the issue was there was a veil that they couldn't cross until the death of Jesus, that veil ripping from top to bottom that separated man from having access to the Holy of Holies there to be with Jesus. And so what we find is this a picture of the fire over the head of these disciples, it very clearly shows a reconnection back together with God, a reuniting. In fact, our word religion, which kind of gives a lot of us the creeps just a little bit when people say, are you religious or religion? But the word religion actually means to relink. It's a relinking, a reconnecting of man back to God, back into fellowship with one another. And so what you'll find is as you allow the Holy Spirit to do this in your life, as you allow him to actually change you from the inside out and begin to be in a community with a body like this, there will be a tremendous unity that actually takes place, and you will be able to have real conversations with people. Real, deep, real conversations, unlike the surface-level stuff that was taking place before. And so we see God is all about this. And so as I share that, I was thinking back this week 
uh, to getting to go to Africa a couple years ago and, and how much in common I had with these men, these pastors, completely on the other side of the world. You wouldn't have thought looking at us that we had anything in common. Totally different skin color, totally different upbringings, and yet because of the unity of the Holy Spirit, we had everything in common. We had eternity in common. And so we were very diverse, and yet we had a tremendous unity because of the Holy Spirit. Now, you'll also note that he is unseen and unheard. This is an important attribute of the Holy Spirit. While he is unseen and unheard, the fruit of what he is up to is always seen. You see the wind there taking place because of the after effects of the wind. As the wind blows across the field, it's like the Mattoon Green Wave, right? You got the wind blowing back and forth, blowing the green wave back and forth. This is what we see with the Holy Spirit. But what he is always about is not drawing attention to himself, but instead always pointing people to Jesus. That's his relationship in the triune Godhead. I don't claim to understand all about the Trinity that there is the grass, but what I find is throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is always pointing people to Jesus. Now then, verse 5, And there were uh, dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. And then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language? language in which we were born, uh, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pont- Pontus and Asia, Phygeria and Pamphylia, Egypt and other parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And so... As we journey into this section of Scripture, this is often debated in our churches today is the gift of tongues, the giving of the gift of tongues. So is it, first, the first question is, does God give the gift of tongues of angels or the gift of tongues of men? And there are many different camps. Some believe that God only gives the gift of tongues to speak in an angelic language, Some believe that he only gives the gift to speak in a human language, one that the speaker just doesn't understand. Uh, Others, and this is the camp I fall into, believe that God can give the gift of tongues in any language he chooses. (laughs) Anyone. In fact, Paul says uh, that I can speak both the tongues of men and of angels. He speaks of both of these languages. The point to this, where I'm going, is uh, God is not limited in the way that he can influence people, the way that he can reach people, he is not by any means uh, limited. He wasn't limited then. He continues to not be limited uh, to this day. And so I believe this gift is very much in play for the Christian church. God didn't say this gift is no longer to be used anymore. And so I believe that God can continue to give the gift of tongues to people. But here's the reason for the gift of tongues, and this is important for us to understand, is that it is always to edify the believer not to confuse. 
If you've ever been to a worship setting where there are lots of people speaking in tongues all over the place, it can be very confusing, it can be distracting, and, and it can feel like uh, disunity instead of unity. And Paul was very clear in 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. This is the spot to go if you're curious about this. But as uh, Paul's sharing, he says, in a service setting, let there only be two, or at the very most three, that get up to share in tongues. But beyond that, in verse uh, chapter 14, verse 40, he says that everything should be done decently and in order. That it should not be a confusing setting, but instead done decently and in order for the purpose of edifying the believer, to actually have the believer built up. The second use of the gift of tongues is always to magnify God. That Notice with me in verse 11 what they say is that, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. The gift of tongues is not used so that uh, mankind can get a new revelation of God, but instead it declares God's goodness. What I mean by that is tongues is used to, be, uh, to go from man to God. It's a part of the worship experience, as opposed to prophecy, which is from God to man. And if the gift of tongues is used in a public format, in a church like this, if someone comes up and wants to share, then an interpretation must always be included so that everyone can actually enjoy what the wonderful works of God are that they're declaring. Otherwise, it's confusing, and again, it's not God's intent for it to be used that way. So if you're ever in a worship setting and someone gets up to share the gift of tongues, and then someone comes up to interpret, and they say something like this, Thus saith the Lord, you're all going to fry. That's not the gift of tongues at all. <laughs> because the gift of tongues is a declaration of God's good works. Right? It, it's glorifying to the Lord. It's from man to God. Whereas a prophecy is from God to man. And now, by the way, a little sidebar prophecy, that gift is always to do three things, to edify to encourage, and to exhort. And so prophecy is to be used for edification, for a building up of God's people, for an encouragement for the people, and exhortation. That's like a spiritual kick in the pants. Hey, time to get going. And so that's what prophecy is to be meant for. So again, if you're in a church setting and anyone gets up with a gift of prophecy and says, thus saith the Lord, you're all going to die and burn in hell. That's not what God's intention is for the gift of prophecy. You'll know immediately that's not encouraging, at least not encouraging to me. Maybe that's encouraging to you, but that's not at all what Scripture shows us about the prophetic gift. Now, the gifts of the Spirit, the point of these gifts of the Spirit, and really all of them, are for unity and not for divisiveness, not for division. In fact, it's clearly noted that we receive the same spirit of God. It's a unification. It's a bringing together, not a division. Now, as a little side note, as we look at this, I want to go back to this gift of tongues and really where uh, tongues uh, or different languages actually begin. I know you guys love it when we go back to the Old Testament. We're going to go back this time to Genesis chapter 11 to the Tower of Babel. And what you see there in Genesis chapter 11 verse 1 is that now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And so there was a time where uh, the language of men was actually all united and together. It was one. It was singular. And then in verse 2, it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar. 
and they dwelt there. And then, there, then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. At this is what they've begun to do. Now, nothing that they will propose to do will be withheld from them. So come, let us go down. Let us confuse their language that they do not understand one another's speech. And so the Lord scattered them abroad from all over the face of the earth, from the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore it is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. Now, reading that story, for at least uh, me, when I first perused this, I think, does God just not like a good construction project? Like, is he not all about building a skyscraper? I mean, this seems like a legitimate project. They're working together. They've got unity. What in the world is the issue here? And you don't realize what it is until you go back two chapters to chapter 9, verse 1, as God is giving Noah a command. They're fresh off the boat, and he tells Noah and his sons, be fruitful and multiply, which, by the way, we like that part especially us men. We're really good at that piece, the be fruitful and multiplying. We can check that box. But then the next piece of that verse is, and fill the earth. The command of God was to be fruitful and multiply and not to build a tower, but to fill the earth, to spread out. And so what you find is that the Tower of Babel, this project was actually a direct act of defiance and disobedience to God. This is where the disunity actually begins. Disunity always starts with disobedience to God's word. Now, another piece of this to me that is at least sad in this, and this is a part that comes out of disobedience. Notice with me in verse 4 that they made brick of stone and they used asphalt for mortar. I look at that and you think, why in the world would you use asphalt for mortar? I mean, that doesn't seem like a common building material. You'd use cement for mortar, wouldn't you? Until you realize that um, what did Noah put on the outside of the ark to waterproof it? But asphalt. He used pitch or asphalt to waterproof the ark. And so in their disobedience, here's the sad piece of this. They didn't even believe God would be a God of his word. He specifically told Noah, I am never going to flood the earth again. And yet as they're starting this building project, What's the first thing they try to do? We've got to make this puppy waterproof because God's going to flood us just like he did the last time. And so they go about this building project completely denying God at his own word that he's not going to flood the earth again. They were wasting their time, but this is precisely what disobedience brings about. It brings about division, and it brings about this fear because they didn't take God at his word. Now, back to the text at hand because most of you are wondering, what in the world am I talking about? When you look at these names of the different uh, people that were brought back together through the Holy Spirit, in verse 9 it starts with Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in uh, Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia. Those names, beginning with the start of verse 9, with the Parthians, the Medes, and the Elamites, 
Those were the ones who dwelt in the plains of Shinar. The Holy Spirit is very intentionally trying to point out to us that what disobedience brought about, which was disunity and a confusing of the languages, is that the Holy Spirit was actually looking to reverse. He was intentionally going to this area, trying to point us back to the Old Testament to say, look, I'm going to reunify the thing that you, through your disobedience, tried so hard to tear down and destroy. He is all about unity. And as you look uh, out across our world today, right now, in this time, and I'm going to not make a political statement at all. I'm going to do my very best to not be political in this. But when you look at just what we have gone through in this last 18 months, it has caused a tremendous amount of disunity. We have been divided, not just among uh, people groups like I've seen in the past, black, white, uh, you know, all those type of things. We've seen that division, but this type of division has actually gone right into the very household. That there have been husband and wife divided against one another, father and mother, fathers and sons been divided over the issue of, do we vaccinate, do we not? Do we mask, do we not? What, what do we do? Where do we go? Do we send them to school? Do we not send them to school? All these questions. And by the way, I'm not saying that anything to do with, the, with a virus is satanic. But what I'm saying to you right now is that the spirit of disunity and division that is created by this is that this uncomfortable feeling that we have over this whole circumstance is all an evil way to try to divide us. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do in this time, and I, I think we as a people can be the ones to stand up and say, you know, we're going to be unified. We are going to be unified. And the way that we can do this is with a gift that God promised us, us the most excellent gift. I'm going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to start in verse 29. Because if you've ever thought about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, I don't know about you, but I, I often think about what I don't have. <laughs> Quickly, I, I start checking off the list. I ain't got that. I ain't got that. I'm not that guy. Paul asks this question. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do they have the gift of healings? Do, do all speak of tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gift and yet I will show you a more excellent way and then we skip into chapter 13 verse 1 though I speak with the tongue of men and angels but have not love I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal the gift of the Holy Spirit that each and every one of us can possess and we can use in our daily life that God will give and give freely is the gift of love all these other gifts are fantastic. They, they all bring people to the Lord. They point people back to Jesus, but they do not hold a candle to the gift of love. And so the reality is if we want to see unity happen in our families, unity happen in our neighborhoods and in our schools, the way we are going to do that is through loving people. Loving people right where they're at, not just loving them because they agree with us or believe the way we believe, but putting all those things aside, being the more mature believer going, you know, I'm just going to love them right where they're at. We're just going to figure it out right from this spot, and we're going to move from here because that's the gift of the Holy Spirit, the more excellent way. Now then back to the last couple verses for this morning as we head down the home stretch. 
Verse 12, And so they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? And others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. So here we see the reaction that some have and then the reaction that others have. But the first thing to notice is that they were both amazed and perplexed. Amazement is a state of your mind being arrested. Like, I just can't wrap my mind around this. While being perplexed is your mind being blown. Just, wow, what's going on? This is the reaction of some. And yet for others, notice with me, um, in verse 13, they say they're full of new wine. These guys are drunk. Like, what in the world's going on? They must be schnockered. Because like, they're, they're, they're speaking in all these foreign languages, and folks are, are rejoicing, but it doesn't make any sense. They must be loaded. And I think how often we are critical when we do not understand things. We don't understand lots of times the gifts of the Spirit, and so immediately we are critical of these things. I don't get it, so it must be bad. But that's not at all what we see in these verses and, and notice with me, too, their immediate assumption is these guys must be uh, full of new wine. They must be on the sauce. I share that. I'll skip down to, to verse uh, 15. And we know that they assume they're, they're drunk by this, by the way, because in verse 15, Peter says, these are not all drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. I love the wisdom of Peter. Hey, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. <laughs> I mean... Yeah, thank you, Peter, for making that clear. I mean, so anyway, I won't go down that road. Some of us have figured it out how to be drunk by that time, but that's another story. But the reality is, um, when it comes to uh, alcohol, when it comes to wine, when it comes to an adult beverage, uh, the reality is uh, there's nothing in Scripture that says you cannot partake. As many times as I was shared this as a kid that we were not to and, and that this new wine was not an actual fermented wine, it was just a holy grape juice. And the reality is Peter had to make it clear they're not drunk for a reason because it was wine, period. Now, drunkenness in Scripture is very clear where God stands. He will not uh, tolerate it. He does not approve of drunkenness, and yet uh, having a drink is not the issue. So now that I've made... Uh, Many of you uncomfortable, made me a little uncomfortable. I'm going to continue because that's what we do here. The issue here is um, with spirits. By the way, if you've ever looked at uh, alcohol as it's being sold, it's oftentimes called uh, spirits. Have you noticed that? That spirits are oftentimes an imitation for the Holy Spirit. And people use it all the time for an imitation of the Holy Spirit. And what do I mean by that is uh, think about it. Um, liquid spirits can uh, do a lot of the same things, at least for a short period of time, that the Holy Spirit can. For one, uh, can create unity. I mean, go to a bar on a Saturday evening, and what you will find is a tremendous amount of unity and with diversity. I mean, people will amazingly put down all kinds of issues and, and arguments over the liquid spirits, right? I mean, they're like, yeah, especially over football, right? Roll Tide. I mean, people get excited, even though they're from completely different walks of life. It, it can create unity, the second thing it can create, liquid spirits can, can create boldness, right? Uh, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit for boldness, but if you've ever had the liquid courage, you know what I'm talking about. Like people get bold and brash when they get the liquid spirits in them. The third thing, though, that I want to point out is that it always leaves you wanting more. Whether it's the liquid spirits or the one that uh, I'm going to direct you to instead 
the Holy Spirit. If you've ever had an interaction with the Holy Spirit, you're always left wanting more. Oftentimes, we get filled with the Holy Spirit and, and it feels so good. And then the next thing you know, uh, we need another filling. I, I always encourage people, pray to the Lord that he will continue to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And I've had folks ask, why do you have to keep praying for a filling of the Holy Spirit? Well, H.A. Uh, Ironside said it best when he would pray for a filling of the Holy Spirit. He said, because I leak. <laughs> All right, I, I leak. That's the reason I need to be continually filled. And some of you leaked just on the way to church this morning, right? Like you blew it at the stop sign when that guy didn't go fast enough. Yes, moron. Like it's amazing how fast we can leak. And so we need a continual filling of the Holy Spirit. But just like with the liquid spirits, it always leaves us desiring more. But here's the issue with the liquid spirits. It never like any bad imitation, it never satisfies. Have you noticed that? And if this is you, if you've fallen in this camp at all where you've tried to use liquid spirits as a way to make your situation feel better, to make it go away for any length of time, what you find is it never, ever does. At least for me, this, this, was, my, this was my jam right here. That, that going through life and as a young man, uh, knowing the way to success and hard work and determination and all the things that I was told about this life, that if I just followed this prescription and, and became successful enough that I would have uh, happiness, that I would find real, true joy in this life. And so check the boxes. Got a great job. Check the boxes. Got a beautiful wife. Couldn't have kids for a while. Struggled through that. But then, amazingly, the Lord blesses us with the family. And then we've got the big house and everything falling into place. Except the issue that I had was there was no joy. Couldn't ever quite get the big project done the way I hoped to get it done. And so it was always this, this effort to try to please the man. If I could just please him. And, and truly what Proverbs says is the approval of man is a snare. It was a trap. There was no making people happy in that world. And then to come home, and, and the wife that wanted me home so badly, didn't she know I'm doing all these things for her? This is all for you, woman. When the reality was it was all for me every time. And so, for me, it was the feeling like a complete and total failure. Everything that I tried to accomplish and do to provide for them, I couldn't do it. And so... A turning to the liquid spirits. <laughs> That'll make it better, right? A little bit of me and the captain working things out late at night. Now, it never looked like a raging alcoholic, like some, never angry. I wasn't that guy at all. But, but what was going on inside was a complete and total destruction because I hated that man that I'd become until an interaction with the Holy Spirit. And at that point in time, that feeling, that feeling of failure and mistake and regret, it didn't all get fixed overnight. I don't want to lie and say it was like a light switch. But slowly, over the course of time, that man that I hated so much, he died. <laughs> he, just, he just went away. He, he, he just slowly but surely went away. Occasionally, he tries to rear his ugly head. But back to hell where you belong, old man. Stay down there. And so what the Apostle Paul shares in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, he says this, 
And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the only way to truly satisfy that feeling. So if this is you, I want to encourage you. Put it down. Stop it. You're never going to be filled like you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit, here's the beautiful thing. All you have to do is ask. He cannot wait to fill you. He cannot wait to baptize you in the Holy Spirit, to raise you back up again as a new creation. Now, because I don't want to let the rest of you off the hook, (laughs) notice with me, as these guys rejoice, what was the assumption by the crowd? The assumption from the crowd around them was, man, they must be drunk. I mean, look at how joyful and happy they are. They must be loaded. And then I wondered, as I was studying through this this week, has anybody ever accused me of being drunk on Jesus? That I worshipped so intently, that I laid it all out there at the foot of the cross so much, hands in the air just overjoyed with what he's done, that people said, man, is that guy drunk? I've for sure been accused of the other side, but I've never been accused of worshiping like that. And so I was convicted. But here's the reality. Today is a new day. We have the opportunity to actually come together and rejoice in his name and show people what being full of the Holy Spirit could actually look like. And this place and this group of people can actually be a people that have so much joy that Marty's doesn't look nearly as attractive as what it used to on a Saturday night. That this place has that kind of attraction to those kids because they want to know what is so different. I want that kind of joy in my life, one that lasts, repeatedly lasts and I can be filled. And oh, by the way, I don't have a headache. Praise the Lord. I don't have a headache from that kind of joy. So I want to encourage you guys this week as you worship and as you read and as you study to be so overjoyed with the Holy Spirit that that's what splashes out on people all around you. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it never returns void. Thank you, Lord, that while we don't always understand all these things of Scripture, that you point us in the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he unveils things and reveals things that all point right back to you. Thank you, Jesus, for another day to get to worship, to get to praise, to get to truly fall down at your feet so overjoyed because of what you have done, the way you have resurrected us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for what we're getting ready to observe, which is baptism, that we get to see uh, you at work in the life of a young man. Thank you, Father, for uh, the picture that you give of a life that is resurrected. So all this we praise you for in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand with me and let's worship our